and welcome to Voice Club. It's a real pleasure to have you along. It's about transformative conversations. And today I'm sitting down with Neville Christie. He's a wonderfully interesting man. I do hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Can we start perhaps with uh, the kickoff? I'm 75. I've been seriously innovating and entrepreneuring since I was 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often wonder whether I did that by choice or was it because my father uh, went belly up with his health and his business, uh, which meant that um, I basically became the major breadwinner while still at school. So I started. And how old my, were you then? I was 12. 12, 12. So I started my first four or three uh, micro businesses, and by the time I was 13, still full time at school, I was earning three or four times the basic wage. Uh, that started me off on this, and uh, so far I've worked with, I've built 44 of my own businesses, and I've worked with at least 2,000 other people to get their businesses start up. But um, at 75, I'm extraordinarily optimistic about the world. I see the, the new platforms, the new technological disruptions that are occurring, the new sets of connectivity around the world is the most wonderful thing that I've ever experienced. Mm. But there's some real problems emerging as well. And uh, I, I want to uh, create a community. I want to be part of a community that will uh, resolve those problems. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds, that sounds like a wonderful aim. I can tell you what I was doing at 13 years old. What? Well, there's a game called World of Warcraft, <laughs> which the few you guys know, World of yeah, Warcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the way you play World of Warcraft is you go to sleep the night before at about four o'clock in the morning. Right. And then about seven o'clock in the morning, because you're so enthralled to, to play the game and get grinding, what you do is you fall out of bed just only with your boxes on yeah. and then just climb your way up into the chair and then turn on. And then that's it, you're good for 13, 14 hours grinding away on the computer. Right. So you had a similar start to life is what I'm trying to say here. At the moment I'm doing 13 to 14 hours uh, building the online community, so it's great fun. No, I'm highly conscientious, Neville, you know, I just put all that effort into the virtual world. And you know, that's that's an interesting link, right, between what the world gives us right now technologically and also the pitfalls it sort of presents. It is, yes. Because I think for me, this is the big issue, Tim, that like, uh, look, I, I, I'm amazed at, at the amount of uh, new stuff that's coming out for mind science, for medical health. Like there's 10,000 unnecessary deaths every year in Australian hospitals through human misadventure. Uh, but technology is coming and, and is being invented to, to overcome that. Uh, the whole platform of the World Wide Web and the internet and the digital world and apps and smartphones, like, you know, you guys just take these for granted, but, you know, oldies but goldies like me know how just amazing and how different. So, like, you know, go back to when Australia was founded, it took as much as six months for a letter to come from the UK to Australia. Mm-hmm. But now, like, everything's instant. Like, yeah. the whole world is at our fingertips. But I see um, four massive markets that are not being addressed where there are really huge needs for innovating. Uh, the first I see is, uh, perhaps strangely, the um, all the big problems of the world we face, like terrorism, tri- inter-tribal wars, uh, water pollution, the, the warming of the planet. Uh, you know, you can list every big problem. And uh, a lot of people are saying, why doesn't the government, why doesn't the United Nations, why doesn't somebody do this? But, but these are massive opportunities for, for individuals and collectives to collaboratively innovate. So that's the, big, the first big one, like that market. Innovators, I don't believe, are seeing that those problems are massive opportunities for innovating and change and building a better world. Uh, the second area is really the dispossessed, if you think about it. The, the poor, the impoverished, the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, the powerless, they are in fact the biggest market there is in the whole world. And innovators are, are starting to do things about that, like creating um, solar power batteries for, for families in Africa where going out to the toilet at night can mean that the lamp turns over and the whole house is burnt down. Uh, you know, water uh, improvement of water schemes and so on. So there's so much going on with um, thank you products, uh, a, a whole reinvention of philanthropy so that it's not about giving and disempowerment, but it's about building self-sustainability in impoverished and communities that are disenfranchised. So that's a, that's a massive market for anyone who's, who's a social or a profit-making uh, innovator. Right. Uh, the third area I see is, is um, the service industries. Like at the moment, 
something well over 60% of all jobs are in the total services industries. Yet the major researchers like CEDA and the United Nations and PricewaterhouseCoopers are saying that as many as 50 to 75% of these jobs are going to go or be automated in the next 10 to 15 years. Now that means that anyone in the service industry has to really wake up to the need for massive innovation of their services, what they offer, if they are going to remain relevant. Otherwise right. they go, they, right. you know, they don't have a role, they don't have a job. Right. So that's a, that's a huge, huge, huge area. And then the fourth big area is, and, and again, I don't think this is being seen very much, is that organisations and institutions themselves, partly because of the changing generation, partly because of all the massive disruptions and technologies we've got, and partly because of these big global issues that are impacting. Organisations and institutions around the world are themselves in need of transforming, transforming are in need of innovating. Uh, so innovators need to work on innovating organisations, institutions, and that I think is right across the board, our families, our social lives, our cultural institutions, our political, our sports, all of these need innovating. So, you know, I, I see a massive need for the innovating cosmos. Um, yeah, no, and I cosmos think. is an interesting word too, which you might like to ask me about. Well, we can get to it, but you know, there is something that if I mean there's a lot of themes to draw on from yes. what you've from what you've said obviously but if I could begin with one it's this it's this need or requirement for the individual to make some innovating turn within their own lives within their own yes. way they relate to themselves perhaps yes. relate to others and because it's kind of like are we you know different political institutions Perhaps the cliche is to talk about it as whether or not it's a top-down versus bottom-up. You know, are we going to create some sort of government that's going to organise people to behave in a certain way, or in fact, in not fact, should no? <laughs> like, I mean, just, mate, I, <laughs> don't worry. Well, it's it's whether the powers that be sort of do, and there's definitely a movement towards yeah. towards that line of thinking. But what seems to be at the at the crux of what you're speaking about is the requirement for the individual to look wake up is another cliche thing out there and, and I, I don't really want to put it like that but there is a turn towards innovating turn towards recognizing the creative potential within yourself exactly that's required and that has to happen on an individual level and there's something I think that well one of the great one of the great talents I've witnessed in a short time I've known you is, is your ability to speak to an individual and guide them towards expressing what they might need to in order to recognize within themselves something that they have to bring out or nurture in order to recognize themselves as something different from what they were before. Well, thank you. I'm feeling a bit embarrassed about that. But uh, yeah, because uh, an article of faith for me really is that in this sort of world with the sort of platforms and tools we have, that everybody, everybody can be an innovator and uh, the need f need is for everyone to be an innovator. But I want to go beyond that because, um, you know, when I started my first businesses at, at age 12, uh, and by the way, I see we're not just talking here about startups, we're talking about all sorts of innovations in all sorts of forms. But when I started my businesses, um, uh, it, you took it for granted you would do it yourself you know it would be yours you'd own it and then you'd you'd get the help and pay for uh, advice but um, increasingly the need uh, innovating need is really for us to do it cooperatively to collaboratively in groups in teams uh, in partnerships in joint ventures um, that the, the day of the solo entrepreneur is far too lonesome uh, and it's it's unnecessary the world is too complicated and, and part of what encourages me is when I work with, particularly millennials who, you know, are going to be our future in a few years, they'll be at least 50% of the global workforces. Uh, millennials um, have a totally different attitude from what I had because you guys, you know, you, you've been used to uh, the digital world. Your brains are differently hardwired from mine. 
uh, you, you, you see you have all sorts of apps and techniques and SMSs and you know things I've never even heard of that you can talk to people all around the world and you know the world's your oyster. Uh, the whole idea of six degrees of freedom, like there's, you know, you want to get to Obama, you want to get to, to uh, what's his name, the new president? Uh, Trump. Trump. <laughs> I conveniently forget his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, want, you want to get to these people, like there's six degrees between, and you can get to them, there's six people that can get you there. Right. If, um, so. No, absolutely. Just log on Twitter and you've got Trump letting you know his deepest, darkest exactly. thoughts right there. But this is a totally different world, Tim, isn't it? And it's a world of connectivity, of networking, of, of collaboration. And, and it's that power that we need to marshal, I believe, for these, these apparently intractable problems that the world is facing and to the service problems and to the, uh, the disadvantaged and disempowered uh, issues of the world. And, and like, you know, an innovator's role is really to make the world a better place for all to lift the life, the relating, the lifestyle, the loving, the, the wealth uh, of all. Um, and at the moment, we're not quite doing that. The, the, uh, the, the benefits are being distributed very unevenly around the world. So last night, I was going through a book you kindly gave to me. Which was a, a book that you put together. Yes, oh, mine. Instant coffee. <laughs> right, Instant yeah. coffee. My quotes. Yeah. There, there are a number of quotes in there. And... I thought it might be interesting just to read a couple out and then I hope we can draw together some of these themes and uh, we'll see what we can get. Yeah. But the first one is this, it's, it's by someone who I haven't heard of before, his name is Piero Ferrucci, who's an yes. Italian psychologist. Yes. And he says this, he Quite says... famous by the way. Mm, well, yeah. there you go, mate, yeah. I told you, at 13, just playing World of Warcraft, that, that, isn't it? That's for my generation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So look, he says, how often? Even before we began, have we declared a task impossible? Yeah. And how often have we construed a picture of ourselves as being inadequate? A great deal depends upon the thought patterns we choose and on the persistence with which we affirm them. Yes. I think you'd agree with that, 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 that everything really starts with, with our thoughts, uh, like creativity, innovation, the world, the way we perceive the world. Like, if, if I think this government is the worst government since sliced bread and, you know, they're going to bring us all down. Uh, as against, gee, I love this government, you know, everything they're doing is wonderful and fantastic and exciting. Uh, that, that different mindset will bring a totally different way we respond and act and are in the world and the way we see problems and opportunities. Uh, so the, the first step always in being everyone an innovator is to change our givens, change the, the rules we live by and change our mindsets, uh, adopt uh, not a problem. Like when I was doing my MBA, the, uh, the lecturers would always say the role of managers is to solve problems and I'd say, and create opportunities. And they'd say, the role of managers is to solve problems and I'd say, and to create opportunities. So after the end of two years, they used to tackle on and create opportunities. But like. Uh, there's a massive difference between seeing that, that there are problems to be solved as against opportunities to be created. And problems in the mind, uh, when they become opportunities, then suddenly we move from debating and yelling and screaming to actually doing something about it. We become actual practical innovators instead of armchair entrepreneurs and idea shifters. Yeah, look, I mean... I totally get that. But there's something about impossibility and the feeling of that, being in the place where you are encountering the impossible. That's yeah. something that, well, I think everybody obviously recognizes as occurring at some point in their lives. And particularly about two weeks ago, I was sitting down to write um, a paper. And as usual, you know, you, you go into it and those first few days you are coming up just against a wall. And for me, because I care so much about, about the writing, because I'm trying to tie in together some of these principles like- You're such a perfectionist, yes. Well, you yeah. know, yeah. it's important though to look, and, and there's, there's, there's something to be said for that. But, but the, the, the problem I've, I've found, especially four or five years ago, was coming up against that feeling of impossibility yeah. and the negativity associated with it and somehow feeling, because you can respond to that in a few ways. You know, you, you, can, you can see it and go, there's something, you can buckle in front of it, 
or you can maybe think to yourself, oh, if someone else, they wouldn't quite be feeling it as though it was this impossible. Maybe that wall wouldn't be there for them and maybe I should, maybe I should stop. Maybe this is too much. And the thing is for me is I, any task I've ever taken on, that impossibility, that we, we might change it slightly and refer to it as an unknown, as something unmapped, as, as a potential that is a, as once, at once terrifying but also awe-inspiring. Yes. That's, that's not in, a, that's in an important sense, that's not to be discarded. It's not to be pushed away as though it's not real. And so for me, that impossibility, as it applied to this task, what it really meant was that I had waded in to some sort of foreign land that, well, necessarily I didn't know how to act there because I hadn't been there before. There was nothing about what I had currently done that had been put together. And so one thing I would say is that we shouldn't understand this changing mindsets to mean denying who we are. And I know that's not what you're saying, but that was a misinterpretation I had about things. But I think there's three different types of impossibility. Uh, The first is an actual real physical impossibility. Like, you know, if I stood on that balcony eight stories up and I jumped off believing that I could fly, uh, that's an impossibility and I'm going to end up rather nastily on the ground. Right. Unless I then say, okay, I accept that me flying is an impossibility, but like the Wright brothers, I will invent some technology, some piece of uh, aid, some tool that will help me to do that. Then that impossibility becomes a possibility, isn't it? So I've taken the physical world with its limitations and I've added some ideas, some technology, some different ways that's turned what truly was physically impossible into something that's truly possible. I mean, I I use a funny little example. I said to someone the other day, do you know, I found a new way how to walk right through a wall. And he said to me, that's impossible. I said, no, it's not. It's called a door. So, like... um, technology and and the second type of impossibility is really an impossibility that we've placed uh, on by our mind you know by our fears our anxieties by the traditions that we've grown up with uh, by um, uh, well by all the things that make us human beings um, so many things are off our off our agenda are impossible simply because our mindset says uh, right. they're impossible right. and of course, some of those we are incapable of changing. So yes, they are impossible to us, but they may well be very, very possible to someone else. And the third thing, as you indicated earlier, uh, like um, impossibilities as an individual sometimes become wonderful possibilities as a collective, as like when another person sits down with you and explores the fears, the anxieties, whatever is stopping you from moving forward that becomes a point of transformation. Then when you say, well, I've got these skills, but you know, in order to do this impossible thing, we need uh, all these other skills. Um, we put a team together and suddenly the impossible becomes not only possible, but it happens. So, Tell me about Cosmos. <laughs> oh, I love the word Cosmos because it has three separate meanings. The first is it's our physical universe as perceived harmoniously. So it's a concept that the universe is not just random, not just expanding, not just a whole lot of stars and planets and energies and black holes, but there's a harmony about it. Um, So I like that uh, because increasingly we need to attend to the harmony of the world, the ecology of the world, not just the separate disparate parts. Uh, you know, I mean, climate change being the most obvious example of our need to... And, and I think we've got the climate change thing a lot wrong. You know, we are saying, uh, will the planet survive? Yeah, the planet will survive. It's pretty good at throwing off parasites. Uh, so if it's us that, you know, whether you want to argue that we're not causing it or we are causing it, the point, uh, the point is the planet will survive unless we change our behavior, uh, you know, and it will throw us off unless we, we change our behavior. So our cosmos is that. The second thing is a cos- cosmos is any unified field of knowledge, any, uh, a, a cosmos of science, a cosmos of innovating, <clears throat> and, it's, and it's any body of thought 
that you can uh, you can apply in a logical, systematic way, in a holistic way. So that's what we're on about: innovating uh, our cosmos, uh, our whole organised universe with all of its elements, uh, its people, its the planet, uh, all of the elements, um, and do it in a systematic, uh, collaborative way. Hence, innovating cosmos and innovating is is uh, the active present participle of the verb. So it's it's, a, well, it's also an adjective, but it's uh, it's about action, uh, uh, not innovation, which is a sort of more abstract uh, word. Mm. Well, there's a few things you said there, and there's some things that relate in some fundamental way to what I've been trying to wrap my head around, yes. and that's the distinction between parts and wholes. Yes. And the reason I say that is because, well. It's interesting to try and refer to something like science. I'm not sure. Sorry. Can you just explain? I will. A, a bit I, more. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's you interesting. You me a little bit there. Yeah. Well, that's the idea with the first comment. Yeah. You spread it out really wide and then you take on a lot and then, and then you doubt whether or not you can get through it as you yes. go ahead. So parts and holes. I'll do my best. And holes are with the W. Holes, holes with the W. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. It'd be difficult to try and think of how they... Well... So what we have then, we, it's interesting refer to refer, try and refer to science as though it's something that's a whole. Because al although you might say it's, it's a theory about the world, science is something that actually progresses by breaking everything up into parts. Yes. It proceeds by at, at least something like the process of... And innovators put the parts together again. Absolutely, and this is what... And That's this is the synergistic uh, element of innovating. Yes. Absolutely. And, this and is it borrows, like it takes a bit from mind science and a bit from physics and a bit from chemistry and a bit from the human sciences and puts them together and says, ha, an opportunity. Right, yes. and what I've been trying to do with my work is to figure out how the mystical insight, how that ultimate way of being in flow, if you like, being a part of the object of your experience itself, how it evolves in a duration, how all its qualitative wonder is ever evolving. Can, I give, can I give you a clue? Please. Well, go ahead. Uh, three words, gratitude, creativity, and imagination. Now, this is weird, and you might say, uh, this is bullshit, but uh, uh, we know from quite a lot of research and a lot of anecdotal evidence that when we move our mindset from about the world or the cosmos from or science or technology from uh, just quizzical or inquiring to gratitude and we start saying I'm so glad I live in this amazing world with all these opportunities and these beautiful people and these wonderful challenges and opportunities the moment we start to make that move to gratitude. Things, chemicals change in our brain. Wiring goes and we start to do two things. We start to imagine and we start to create. Like like Einstein, imagining writing, uh, uh, riding a rainbow to the end of the cosmos. What, what a crazy thing for a scientist to, to imagine. But the moment you, you start to imagine uh, your brain, the left and the right brain, the logical artifact, sorry, the logical accounting brain and the right artifati brain start to go across all these wonderful um, uh, connections and, and, and things start to happen. Uh, and, 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 and you see the world differently. And like, let's look at this, like the left brain has to has to try and get real. It has to be about numbers and engineering and structure. But the right brain, if you think about it, unless unless it removed all impossibilities, nothing had ever happened. Like in the right brain, you imagine a chair. It didn't exist before. Or you imagined a wheel or a certain tool. It never existed before. You imagine it and then the brain helps you create it. And without that wonderful capacity, we would get no innovating at all. Yeah. So. Gratitude leads to imagining a, a different world, a different possibility, a, a moves to creativity, moves to practical innovation. Yeah. And you create holes. You, you're, not, you're not doing that 
detail digging down into analytical problems that right. science and you know many analytical people do. You're right. putting things together. You, you're taking and borrowing from everywhere to create a new whole. Right. No, absolutely. That's a, it's a very powerful notion. I, we spoke a few weeks ago and I was trying to explain what I meant by the idea of logos. Yes, the word. The word. The, I still don't understand the what process. you mean yet, but still. Well, <coughs> you know, I'll try, and, I'll try and put it into the language we've used so far in this conversation. Yes. Which was, we might understand the logos as the pursuit of building some structure between you and I we're speaking in such a way that we understand where we, we are, the context. Do you mean common ground in that sense? Common ground? Yes, common, common ground. vocabulary, common understanding. Got understanding, obviously. We need to use words for some of that, but yeah. I could draw something too. Yeah. So we build that common understanding, and you might say some of that common understanding requires that part of our brain that enables us to get clear about structure and where we currently are. Yeah. We can read the same map, but then there's that other that other move to create something new yes. that exists between both of us. It's yes. what we're each bringing to bear on a conversation. Yes. And we can perhaps create something and maybe even create a new space, a new hole to look at where we've come from. Yes. But sorry, there's three things at least that are needed there for that to happen. First of all, active listening, so right. that you and I are both listening and trying to comprehend what the other is saying. Um, right. Then there needs to be a curiosity where we're saying, I don't understand that, or can you tell me more about that, or what does that mean, or how can we apply that, or if I expressed it in this way, is that... Um, and, and thirdly, we, we're trying to create something in between, a, a common understanding, a common vocabulary, a common, a common action plan, a common commitment. So right. there's you and there's me and there's in, the in-between. Right. And it's the in-between where all the excitement is. Right. Absolutely. And it's also that in between. Well, that's interesting, you know, because it's not so easy to have conversations with people, especially if you disagree with them in some fundamental way. And this is yes. perhaps something that yes. I know Innovating yes. Cosmos, as yes. well as what I want to do with Voice Club, is yeah. a problem that I, you know, needs to, in a sense, be tackled head on because there are certain things I might say that really conflict with what someone might believe at a yeah. fundamental level that they're really not sure about. But as soon as something said and it doesn't quite sound right all of a sudden there's a bit of fear attached yes. it's a bit of uncertainty yes. and so all of a sudden that new space that might be flourishing is seems like a place of fear yes uh, look i i couldn't agree with you more there's not there's a not a lot about this wonderful world that worries me but the polarization of of our societies uh the betrayal of trust the inability to actually sit down and reason together or explore together right. or have an adventure together right. uh, but it seems that we increasingly parts of our community are so far to that end right. or so far to that end that we can't get dialogue we can't like you know it's entrenched positions it's uh, uh, elite understandings um, that that is one thing that worries me enormously about our future as a, as a human race. Right. It's really difficult, you know, because it's something I think about a lot and I'll just explore with this thought here. So if this is not coherent, well, that's the first thing of many. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we talk about the requirement for imagination and there's a quote by Einstein here, actually, that he says, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge yes. is limited. Imagination circles the world. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Like, imagination is more important than knowledge. Right. And yeah. the reason for that is, is that, well, the things you don't know are more important than the things you do. Yes. Uh, and on that, like, um, when I was going to school, uh, it was all about knowledge, you know, cramming it all in. Still uh, is, in lots of ways, still is. Yeah, but, but there's two forms of knowledge, really. That which you learn and know, and that which you know how to find out. Mm. And, and the wonder of today's world with, with the internet and Google and, you know, all the apps and all the search engines and, and you know, all the databases that are there, it is so much easier to find out on a daily basis what you don't know so that your our imaginations can be extended and extended and extended yes there's a lot of misinformation there 
and a lot of diatribe and a lot of polyemics and a lot of but but with imagination and curiosity uh, it is possible to to form new things right new innovating right but what it requires of course is that willingness to be in a sense vulnerable because when you truly imagine something when you truly go beyond what it is you understand there's a difficulty there yes and so yep to try and to try and draw this thought together what i'm currently what i'm currently sort of conceiving the world's always changing you might say what is unknown is always in a state of potential and in some sense it's always moving always you mean what is unknown to humankind or what is unknown to you or me to the individual as well as humankind yeah. uh, but whatever it is it, in its unknown nature you can't predict it and and so how it might affect what you are how it might challenge what it even feels like to be you on some level well you, you can't predict that and so how you then go about relating it to where you were and what you understood as well as what other people might be understanding yeah. how difficult it is to find a way to do that that manages to stay and walk what might be understood as the individual path where you look to take from either side of the polarity and try and find that middle ground because w yeah. what's, so ha what's so easy to happen is you dip your toe in something and it's like, oh, I've already seen that. And all of a sudden, the, the prejudice you already have that looks to understand the world is entirely uh, composed of power, let's say. Abject any notion of good or evil. Abject any uh, uh, notion of, of um, positive meaning in life. And just see someone's interaction as though they're trying to dominate the situation. Well, of course, they might be. Well, they might be. Mm. But I believe that that's not always the case. And so it might be the case that they see something that's really an, an honest effort to try and communicate, do something individual and so challenge someone, but ultimately an attempt to build that middle ground between people. And they might say, oh no, no that's not what that person is doing. I'm gonna see that person is already conforming to my prior, priorly held belief structures. And I'm in fact going to use that moment of creativity. And I appreciate this is a little abstract, but I'm gonna use that moment of creativity. I'm gonna block it before I even consciously realize it's happened. And I'm gonna interpret it as something that's threatening and wrong. I, I, I think you're onto something very big here. And uh, it's often said that the two primal reactions of human beings to change uh, or to danger are uh, fight or flight. And look, that truly applied going back to Neanderthal man and, you know, the prehistoric beasts and so on, the dinosaurs and the, uh, the mammoths. But um, uh, I think that's a, a, a great oversimplification because when I look around the world at individual behaviours and, and at organisational behaviours and nation, national behaviours, what I see is a minimum of seven different behaviours. Uh, now, there'll be many more, but like... Uh, I'd like to move it at least from two to seven. And the seven are, yes, faced by a fear, a challenge, a threat uh, um, that, that we find a bit threatening. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we first of all can fight. So then we can flight, flee, flee or flight. Mm -hmm. But sometimes what we do is we just simply bunker down and hope that eventually it'll all go away. And we're seeing that at every level of our society. People refusing to believe in climate change, refusing to believe that, you know, uh, there's more, uh, refusing to believe there was a holocaust, you know. They bonker down into right. denial and just say... Refuse uh, to believe that the world is round as well. It's well, a circle, yes. I believe. Well, that's we all know it's flat, don't we? I mean, I well, can well, see that there, it's flat. Yeah, no, fair enough. So that's the third, you know, just bunker down, uh, mm -hmm. uh, hope that eventually it'll all go away. The fourth thing, and Rollo May, a great psychiatrist, used to say, it's an ironic habit of human being that we run faster when we've lost our way. So the fourth, run faster when we've lost our way. So the fourth thing is we run faster. We try more things, you know. We speed up our relentless activity to try and solve this problem or get rid of this fear or whatever. Uh, the fifth way is we stop running much or slow right down, you know, so we... we fill ourselves with drugs or sex or rock and roll or whatever we do to uh, you know to slow down and and so that the fear is not so overwhelming uh, and the last two ways are we adapt we do things that say well this is inevitable I've got to change and the final thing is we transform we actually uh, significantly innovate to take advantage of that fear that change and transform it and make it something different better bigger brighter uh, whatever so um, 
you know, I see all those behaviours in every organisation, every individual in me, uh, but, you know, uh, as innovators, we're working on, on the, the sixth and seventh, the adaptation and the transforming, not the running faster, running slower, bunkering down, fight or flight. Mm. I see what you're saying, absolutely. And um, I agree that you can look at each of those as, in some sense, distinct behaviours, but I think the first time we spoke to each other, I was talking to you about some ideas I had um, that related to how to respond or at least how to categorize certain elements of the psychedelic experience. Yes. And, and as you know, I've not been there. I've, I've had your experiences, but without any form of uh, aided chemicals. So. Yes, well, uh, we, can, we can get to that. But in one, in one way that, not that I'm trying, trying to redu reduce what you're saying, but to me, each of those behaviors you listed out I think stems from a particular moment that we might put as honestly paying attention to what's in front of you and the anomaly and something. And something finding that threatening. It's pay attention or not if it's to not pay attention. Like if it's not threatening, uh, we will embrace it, won't we? I mean, if it's not threatening, it's not an anomaly. It's not That's a true right. anomaly. So well, only in response to that which has the capacity to well, change. Well, it can be a true anomaly, anomaly in that it can be a pleasure we've not experienced before. But, but the anomaly refers, what I'm talking to here is the moment, if something's truly unknown, then there's a moment that takes place, even perhaps if it's unconscious, where it's not yet mapped whether or not it's pleasurable yes. or painful. And so I'm referring to it at that level that's, that's one moment back from a behavior that manifests in the world. I'm interested you've used the word unknown a number of times because I, I think there's a big, uh, a big divide of human personalities and types around this notion of unknown. So uh, um, let, let's look at a corporate manager. His, his job or her job is to manage the unknowns, to find out, to research them, to reduce the risk, to... Uh, takes uncertainty out of the equation. Right. But when we're entrepreneuring and innovating, there's two things. Like, like Star Trek, you know, we're going where no one has gone before. Uh, so not only are there many unknowns, there are many unknowns we don't even know about. Like some... Unknown unknowns. Unknown. So there'll be some, look, I'm not very good at maths or I'm not terrific at finding funds. Uh, you know, I don't know how to market. So there'll be things we don't know, but we know we don't know. Right. Uh, uh, so um, that the glory of being an entrepreneur or an innovator is that uh, we're constantly learning on the job. We're trialling, we're experimenting. We know there's risks. We know there's failure. There has to be failure, right? Because, you know, we're going where no one's gone before, um, and and that willingness, ability to embrace that paradox, that ambiguity, that uncertainty, that polarity—give it any name you want to give it—is what distinguishes an entrepreneur, I think, and an innovator from a non-risk taker. Right. And and you know, it's a great heresy that uh, innovators are. Reckless, reckless gamblers, reckless risk takers, because you'll find the behaviour of the vast bulk of innovators and uh, uh, entrepreneurs are calculated risk takers. That what we do is that we know we don't know, and we know there's lots of things we we don't even know about. So we're constantly asking people, you know, what did we get wrong? What have we missed? What what else? Can you add something? Can you tell us something we don't know? Yeah. Uh, can you put another perspective on this? Like, so we're always exploring the boundaries of, of the cosmos uh, to see if we can alter them, reformulate them, learn. Uh, and like, you know, for me, a day that I don't learn something new is a day wasted. Uh, I'm, I, di I died a little bit that day. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so I, I'm still not sure you know, what's your perplexity about the unknown? I, I just don't get it. 
because I, I, I wouldn't you say the unknown is perplexing the, the perplexity no it's human. wonderful it's an adventure it's a, oh it's of course it's the source of adventure yes yeah. Right, but it's also the source necessarily of the problems you encounter in adventure. And so I'm not saying this is a perplexity that is to be avoided. I'm saying oh, it's yeah. a perplexity to be taken on. To but it's only impressed. interesting insofar as it is a perplexity. Yes. Right. Well, uh, again, look, I, I use the analogy of the, of the pictures on the wall. Like, you know, if you, if you see a pastel uh, painting or a, uh, a, a painting of... Um, of uh, white uh, washing, what do you call them? Uh, when you wash the painting? Um, when you wash forget. the painting? Uh, anyway, if you see a pastel <laughs> painting, there's no blacks, there's no dark darks, but the paintings all I have on my wall all contain dark darks and bright brights. Mm. And it's the dark darks, the blacks, that make the light shine through. Right. Um, and I think in life, without the perplexities, the anomalies, the uncertainties, the the challenges, the dark darks, the things that could go wrong, the things that are wrong uh, in ourselves, in the world, in our team, uh, then then life doesn't have, a, it's a bit pastel, it's a bit yeah. wishy-washy, you know. Absolutely. I think it's an interesting <clears throat> way to look at the world and I, I want to jump to a slightly different level of discussion here and that's to talk about good and evil because what is oh, as long as you don't talk about truth well you know me i well i yeah, you can start mentioning things are you force me to reckon well look and i we can talk about we'll talk maybe we'll talk about truth later or maybe we'll talk about it another time but good and evil good and evil it's something that inter i think interpenetrates with everything we've spoken about big you you might you might are you meaning good or evil in a moral sense, in a metaphysic? I mean, please uh, give me some guidance about what you're talking about. Uh, well, on the most radical view I can imagine, the moral sense and the metaphysical sense collapse into one, what you'd say in philosophy, one sort of ontology even. One, like, as in, if you proceed from an understanding that, I guess, good and evil, so, was it... Was it Solzhenitsyn who said, and I'm quoting Jordan Peterson quoting Solzhenitsyn here, but something like that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Yes. And you might think that there is something At about... At 75, it. I have to tell you that's true. Well, you know, one of the... The I more th you understand themselves, the more you understand that we're such a bundle of good and evil, such richness, right. such wonder, but also such uh, incredible um, torture, pain... Right. Uh, life is suffering but in, in some sense the meaning in life must come from it's 42 <laughs> yeah, well, thank, you. <laughs> thank you the meaning in life must, must in some sense uh, the meaning in your life sort of must increase in sort of direct proportion to the voluntary responsibility you take in you take up in response to the necessary suffering in life how, how much are you willing to bear what is difficult? We might, if we talk about it at the level of the problem, the level of the uncertainty, there's something here, there's an option that's come into your life, maybe a source for innovation, but it's really difficult and it might challenge you and it might cause lots of what you thought you were taking forward. It may forward. or may not cause suffering. Suffering may be in the mind. It may be a mindset. That's, well, maybe that's, that, that's interesting. I certainly, certainly there are there are ways to look at the world and what you find in the Eastern tradition certainly is that suffering is, is more the, 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 the starting point in a sense. Look, my, my adopted son Anthony, uh, we didn't know until he was about 12, but, but he came from both his biological mother and father had mental disturbances and uh, he started to show, or actually age six, but at 12, he was really and truly uh, showing signs of paranoid schizophrenia, uh, a polite word for madness. Mm. Um, and uh, over the years before he took his own life, uh, when I used to work with him and be with him and sit with him, um, it became obviously that, that he had a choice. He couldn't stop these crazinesses coming. They were biological and you know, part of his brain structure and chemicals and whatever. He couldn't stop them. But he had a choice over whether he turned the volume up and uh, you know, 
turn them into crazy and and started to uh, exaggerate them or he could turn them down and he used to say well dad sometimes I like the voices and well okay like them enjoy them but sometimes they became so frightening and threatening so for example he would sit here look at you and your face would dissolve into a mask a demon mask and he would hear a voice saying he wants to kill you he wants to kill you now you know uh, it was vital that that he learned to turn that down otherwise he would ex experience enormous suffering but uh, you know suffering is real yes but it's also partly the way we adjust our mind uh, you know um, partly see what's remarkable to me is is that he was Anthony in Anthony 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 Anthony. I need to remember him by his name, not just to him. I understand. What's remarkable is that Anthony was able to face what was most... Sorry, I'm getting a bit teary about my son. So. He was able to face what was most gripping yes. and most... Well, a I'm manifestation of, of evil, you might say. Yes to a greater extent than most people ever have to come into contact with and he had yes. to face that in in so many moments yes and, and, and respond to it and confront it pay attention to day it day in day out day in day out and but make then, choices about it and make choices yes but that's not to say that it's an entire it's entirely a product of his product of his mind necessarily no, i didn't say that right i, I said like you know uh, we know that it's the causes are you know very complicated some of them hereditary uh, one belief is that it, it's not hereditary in the normal sense but it's a virus that's that's uh, captured in the in utero so you're born with it but it's not hereditary in the sense that it's in right. your DNA uh, uh, it's obviously uh, a whole series of chemical changes um, the dendrites of brains the brain don't actually form uh, in the same way that your or my brain form uh, uh, environmental factors um, but but it, it's also many other factors I mean two really interesting things about schizophrenia um, one psychologist I think his name was Adler I'm not sure he used to say to people you're allowed to be crazy out there but when you come in to be with me you have to leave that craziness at the door and then you have to be non-crazy and they were able to do it and then they picked it up again when they went out um, the other thing is that uh, some years ago, before it was banned, <coughs> there were some research studies done uh, by uh, putting people with paranoid schizophrenia, uh, putting tapes on their ears, and as they slept, they would get subliminal messages, positive message about changing and whatever. And they found a certain number of them uh, after these would say, you know, when that voice said da-da-da-da-da-da-da, what did they mean? Pardon. you're not supposed to have heard those voices uh, but they had and and further research indicated that some people who have apparently paranoid schizophrenia because they can hear voices when they go near telephone telegraph lines are actually hearing voices they are called paranoid schizophrenia because when they walk near a television set that's off they can hear voices but uh, and they can because their brain is operating at a different frequency to what our brain is. So do you there think, are many elements to why people go mad. Do you think we could begin to understand that phenomenon as... Because it's hard to get on a grip on the words like frequency from where I'm sitting, but can we get a grip on this phenomenon as well, a manifestation, know, one like, moment, manifestation of the unconscious sort of... No, no, D direct, like, you know, dogs hear at a different modulation, a different frequency to what, they hear different pitches from what we do. Their ears are tuned to different beats. Like, the human, I, I, I don't know, I mean, we have hertz and ranges, we alpha, beta, gamma, delta waves in our brain that respond to certain frequencies. But that's not the total frequency of the universe. Right. Like the stars sing at a different frequency than what we hear. Uh, so, so all I'm saying is that just as dogs hear, some people who are d 
declared mentally mad because they hear voices and see strange things may just be operating in an alternative universe to ours. Yeah, no, I, I totally, <coughs> I totally, I totally understand what you're saying, or at least, at least. The and to me, that can be very innovating. Like you know, to live in a multiverse rather than a universe is rather fun. Well, it is remarkable how, in a number of experiences open to anyone, you can encounter your own self in a radically from a radically different perspective. Whether it's dreaming, whether it's some of the activities I know you are involved in with your shamanic work, yeah. or psychedelic experience, yeah. which I have not had as yet. Which you've not? Well, you know, not 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 with. I not might be with, open to it because Steve Jobs said it was the best thing he ever did in his life. So there you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, whether it's whether it's uh, a, a chemical you're voluntarily consuming or somewhere within your own mind that you, uh, I mean, the word indulge is not right, but manifest uh, as a result of some method, whether it's a certain type of breath work or a journey someone takes you on, where it's a journey to somewhere and in, in, in one sense you can understand it as a, a journey within, uh, a look within to the manifestations of yourself yes. in a radically different way and, yeah. and I, I would love to I suppose hear more from you about your or well, I suppose we can refer to it as a broad broad shamanic journey how would you begin to to talk to someone who had no idea about what a shaman was and what you'd have to do to go on such a journey oh that's a five-hour discussion so um, uh, so maybe we'll park that one okay I'll, uh, but I wanted to come back uh, I don't want to avoid it but it's just it's such a massive top uh, and like just to touch on it would be misleading uh, because for many people the notion of being a shaman is very new age and very um, off the planet and maybe it is but um, well you know let me I, it's transforming it transforming and in some sense I think what a shaman must do to, to bring it to try and relate it to the direct context of the discussion we've had today is is to to act in a way to guide those who he or she is with toward toward a, a place of perhaps a, a it's, it's at once a, a journey outward to some to some space un, unknown place or some problem or some source of wonder or terror, or yeah. both, or both, and to then find that way of building a bridge back to incorporating it yeah. into within something comprehensible. So it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a bridge making. It's a guiding, and and that's exactly what's driving me with with everything with everything I'm so interested in at the moment. Because if we're talking about polarities, how do you bring them together? Or at least you need a bridge where the things well, could. I, I I don't think we should ever bring polarities together personally. No, uh, I, I, that's not the right way to put it. You're right. Uh, my training and experience is that uh, within every human heart, within every organisation, within uh, with, within every transaction you can think of, there's good and bad. There's right. polarities. There's extremes. You want uh, them to talk to each other. That's all I mean by pardon? coming together. You uh, need some mechanism of communication between the two because you don't want them getting disparate and yeah. not able to talk to each other. So not to can, collapse. Can I, can I come back and pick up two themes? Go ahead, you, please. You started to develop and we dropped. Uh, the first was the, good, the one of good and evil. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll probably offend a number of people like this, but um, I, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I don't know whether there is a God. Uh, I'm not prepared to be an atheist and say there is no one that would, who, you know, who can say that? But uh, my belief is that it's not so much that God created us in his or her own image, but that we've created God in our image. Uh, and the highest good that humankind has been able to come up with is that God, uh, sorry, yeah, is love. Love is the, is the, you know, the greatest good in the good-bad conundrum. Uh, so, uh, good-bad continuum. Um, so, um, for me, uh, the greatest good is love. God is love. You know, you... Uh, and, and, and love has so many forms, uh, you know, love of your job, love of, uh, love of a man or a woman, love of your children, uh, love of, of uh, transforming the world. Um, and, and I can't think of any other good that, uh, that's as powerful, transcending, transforming as love. Um, and I see love as a, 
is like an ocean that's never ending and you know we've got access to a tap that's ex uh, to that and most of us sort of take a thimbleful of water a thimbleful of love when there's that whole ocean that we can connect to and when we do that uh, the whole tide of innovating just opens up and you know um, uh, life opens up and meaning opens up and purpose opens up so our life's uh, our cosmos is transformed I think by love um, and and whatever the opposite of love is uh, at the other end is the bad so um, I used to think hate was the opposite of love but no when you hate somebody or something there's some residual investment still in that uh, indifference to me you know I, I, I do what you like I couldn't you know a bit like the end of gone the film gone with the wind you know do what you like love you know I, I've totally lost interest that's one opposite of love but I mean hate is another uh, rape murder pillage you know uh, you can keep going on those those are all the opposites the bads uh, of love if you like um, do you believe that someone who is in the grip of hate let's say they've committed things in their life they've been to dark places how does someone turn the corner and if they do turn the corner is does the trajectory then become the most important thing let's say you're mired somewhere in in hell anything you could possibly do right now is going to involve some action that viewed from an entirely removed perspective is going to be as though you were doing something something wrong or bad you've made so many bad decisions been co-opted and you participated in it somehow but you find yourself so entrenched in something that anything you do is necessarily going to have to battle through some recess of, of hell but nevertheless there's a trajectory there that's moving back towards back towards something else uh, look again a hugely wonderful question to to ask but um uh both research some research and my experience and group work that i've been involved in suggests that even the most intense emotion or an event of an emotion uh can only last for about 13 to 17 six seconds maximum so I can hate on an ongoing basis. It can be a, it can be a lead motive of my life, but an incident of hate will only will run out after thirteen to seventeen seconds. It the, the real issue is the ABC, the 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 attitude, the behaviour, and the consequences. So the the hateful emotion, the behaviour that that causes, and then the consequences of that behaviour. So. That's that's the issue, isn't it? The the ABC, the, the actual hateful feeling, expression, emotional attitude that results in behaviour, that results in consequences. So, changing that hate uh, either needs us as an individual to experience it enough times to get fed up with it and say, this isn't working for me. This is a destructive. Uh, emotion this is destructive behavior and I'm seeing the consequences of my hate both on me and other people and this is not something at that point uh, and until we reach that point it's unlikely that we're going to change um, and so then we can tackle the consequences the behavior or the attitude and usually we need someone to work with us uh, on on that ABC or CBA if you like mm. But it's necessarily still something the individual must. It's a it's a it's a fight to be had in the heart of the individual themselves. Yes. I, we've spoken before about. I'm not sure exactly who, who who said this, but some psychotherapist. Maybe it was Rogers. At any rate, that before you enter the door, someone has to have decided that what they want to do is work towards yes. the better, whatever that is. And no one, in some sense, no one can make that final push towards. Towards, uh, towards manifesting that in someone else. It's something that has to come from within. Oh, look, again, a huge topic, but, but um, there's something important that brings together a number of the themes you've been discussing, I think. Uh, the first is that, um, uh, yes, like 
no one can change, no one can be changed, no one can change another person. Uh, it's only when we come to a point of saying, I want to change, that change occurs. Uh, that's true. Uh, but secondly, uh, as somebody, or the famous saying is, you know, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. Uh, mm. So it, it's quite amazing when we, we get to that point of desperation or wanting to change or whatever, something happens, someone comes into our life that's the catalyst for that, that, that opens our eyes. So, for example, um, uh, uh, on the issue of, you know, I want to deal with this, that's a very interesting one in for two reasons. So somebody's outside my door ready to come in for a mentoring session and they will formulate in their mind what they want to work on today. But when they come in, I, as an article of faith, take it that what they come in with is actually not the real issue. It's just a pointer to the real issue. Now, I could waste two hours working on the apparent issue, but when I assume, and I can be wrong 5% of the time, but 95% of the time it's true, that when I assume that the issue they formulated out there and brought in, and they claim was the issue, is only a pointer to the real issue, and when I look for that and find it, then we start to get dramatic change relatively quickly. And the next thing that's, that's wonderful is that you might work with that individual for half an hour, an hour, two hours, but there'll come a point, what I call the aha experience, when, when suddenly they get it. And this is the most wonderful thing as you sit there and watch what I call as an internal orgasm. There, they, you know, not, not as dramatic as this, but, yeah, yeah. but like their face changes, their body changes, and there's this, yeah. and you've got to shut up and just watch them and enjoy that aha as, as their whole system reprograms itself. Uh, they walk out of here, change. Like I used to sit next to, have offices next to a shrink, and I'd watch his clients walk out, eyes down, you know, crying, sad. And I thought, hmm, he's a shrink. So if my clients walk out with their head and shoulders back with a smile on their face, I must be an expand. So um, <laughs> that, that wonderful moment of aha that, that, that can happen from someone who has reached the point of wanting to change, whether it's hate or doesn't matter what it is, name anything that they want to change, that aha experience is so wonderful it's just life is transformed so innovation occurs so we started off by talking about innovating cosmos yep and the sort of we might refer to it as a community that you want to create as a result that a group of, of us are creating right absolutely so that's that's an aim of yours of ours of ours, <laughs> of the whole collectives. Yes. But speaking, speaking about you personally, yeah. something you've mentioned to me a few times. When you look into the future and what you want to achieve in your life, and you mentioned orgasms. <laughs> You're going to raise this one again, though. Yes. <laughs> How does that relate to where you're heading? Oh, well, look, as you know, um, half-jokingly, half-serious, my life goal is to... Well, they're the best things, half-joking, half-serious, yes. right? Because it means you're that, playing with the boundaries. That's right, I'm playing with the boundaries. My, uh, my life intent is to live to 103, have my last orgasm, and then disappear. Pop off. Pop off. That's yeah. it. Pop off in more ways than one, yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds I like either a get a laugh goal. or a sneer at, at, at that, so, yes. A difficult thing to come to terms with, the whole notion of popping off. Yes. In both senses. Yeah. You're transfixed by the, by the more base pop-off as a kid, and you start to imagine what it might be like as you get older, what it moves towards. Hmm. I have a sense it's a good place to finish. Okay. Mm. Well, there are a few things I might just like to, to wrap up with. Okay. Um, and that's just to say thank you very much for talking uh, to me. It was well, a real thank pleasure. You. Thank you, Tim. And I, I believe we're both going to upload 
certain versions of this to our respective channels and I and I'll I, be uh, uploading to innovatingcosmos.com yep. uh, and to the YouTube uh, version of Innovating Cosmos. Yes, beautiful. And the community, if you like, the project that I'm working on and is the manifestation of the... I've said that word too many times today, manifest. Oh, well, what can you do? Eh? It's the manifestation of the process I've been working on and trying to bring into action in my life. Uh, it's called Voice Club. Oh, yes. So what is Voice Club? Voice Club is something similar to the idea of innovating cosmos in a few ways. Right. It's certainly bonded to the same attempt to foster that creative spirit. It's anchored more towards the medium of conversation and what can be created through that. It's going to... Uh, so it's a rational model, is it? I wouldn't say there's... I wouldn't say that rationality underpins it at its deepest levels. I think rationality is a component that must be brought to bear in the process of Logos. The other is this mystical, creative, instinctual spirit, which is in some sense prior to rationality and is what opens... Uh, Would you call that soul? Because one of my goals is to create businesses and organizations with soul. I think, I think being totally accurate to how soul is often, in, often interpreted in a sort of, it's not quite how I mean it, but in the sense I believe you mean it, yes, it, it, that, that element. And so what that channel is gonna, we're gonna continue to show is me putting forward my own content and my own thoughts about things, but also conversations with, with, uh, with gentlemen and ladies like yourself. Uh, as we progress into the future. I don't know whether I'd attach either label to me, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've got a few names, Neville. You've got a few names. And I know you as Neville, and that's good enough for me. Yes. Neville, who's my friend. So yes. that's, that's good enough for me. And, uh, yeah, so we'll be uploading something of this to that. Great. And I hope in the future, and I'm sure we will have... have many more discussions that continue on what we've spoken about today so I hope so too yeah I'd like yeah. to thank everybody for watching and it's um, until next time I suppose yes thanks for watching and watch again yeah. uh, at innovatingcosmos.com which is the website and whatever YouTube thing is YouTube slash well you know dash innovating cosmos yes well, interestingly, if people have been watching this already, they'll already be been in those places. Well, that's so true. we're gonna we're gonna have the respective links as well as to the links of the lovely gents who have recorded this for us and have helped us out. And their company name is Dynamic Visuals, and I'm very thankful to these so guys. Am I. Dynamic Visuals. Dynamic Visuals. Give them a big plug. A big Dynamic. plug, and they're gonna have their description in the in the in the videos as well. Uh, really great lads who have really helped us out here. So thank you very much. Yes. Okay, back to work. That's it, eh? Well, there we go.